Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Duma. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. This is Dr. Narjus Duma. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a thoracic medical oncologist. And this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode, we'll discuss the state of lung cancer care in India. India is an extremely diverse country. It is the second most populous country in the world with just under 1.5 billion people. And as with every country in the world, lung cancer represents a major threat to public health. Today, we'll learn a bit about the diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer in India and discuss some of the unique challenges to overcome there. We're honored to be joined by Dr. Navneet Singh, professor in the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at the Postgraduate Institute of Medical Education and Research in Chandigarh, India. He is an expert in thoracic oncology, is the faculty in charge of the lung cancer clinic at his institute, and very active in both IASLC and ASCO. He conceptualized the creation of the Multidisciplinary Thoracic Oncology Group in his institute in 2009 and remains its convener coordinator to date. He was also a recipient of the Lung Cancer Care Team Award from IASLC at the World Conference of Lung Cancer in 2019. Navneet, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Hello, Dr. Duma and Dr. Liu, or if I may call you Narjus and Stephen, thank you for inviting me to the official ISLC podcast. It's great to be able to communicate, albeit virtually, with you both, the medical fraternity at large, as well as with patients and their relatives and caregivers, and share my perspective on lung cancer in India, which, as you all know, is the largest and most populous country in South Asia. Thank you for being here with us. And as we are all friends, we are going to be addressing each other by first name. So thank you, Nadine. So India is densely populated. We are growing economy, but some of our listeners may not appreciate that India is a very diverse country from the ethnic aspect, cultural and religious standpoint. Can you comment a bit on the demographics of India overall and among patients with lung cancer and how this diversity brings challenges to patient care? That is absolutely correct, Narjas. It is the seventh largest country by area, the second most populous country overall, and more than 400 native languages are spoken in its 28 states and eight union territories. Even for lung cancer, there is a wide variation in the incidence in different parts, with the highest incidence actually being reported from the northeastern states. Now, while English continues to be widely used in official communication, most patients may only know how to speak in their respective native languages, and therefore doctors and other healthcare professionals who belong to one region and come to work in another part of the country may often need time to adapt and learn the local language and dialect in order to communicate effectively with patients. That is especially true for our institute, which is an apex referral institute, and we get doctors in training both at the residency level and at the fellowship level from different parts of the country. Navneet, we're still learning about sort of healthcare delivery uh, across the world, and obviously it's very different. There are different models at play. Can you talk a little bit about access to healthcare in India? Is this a public system? Is it a private system? Healthcare delivery in India is both via the public and the private healthcare facilities, the public or the government-funded hospitals, as we call them. There is a significant difference in treatment costs between the two, and therefore a vast majority of patients from the lower and the lower middle socioeconomic strata have no option but to seek medical care in the government-run healthcare facilities. And this in turn leads them to be overburdened and overcrowded. 
On the other hand, corporate hospitals are well established in major cities, but they are primarily accessed by patients who can afford treatment there, as well as those who have medical insurance. But at the same time, I must state that most of the population did not have historically and still do not have medical insurance and actually end up paying for treatment from their own savings. However, a few years back, the government initiated the Ayushman Bharat scheme, wherein patients who qualify for inclusion in this scheme based upon certain socioeconomic criteria get access to all the necessary diagnostic and therapeutic options at no cost to them. But there's an annual cap on the total expenditure per family. I hope that helps clarify things. Very much so. When you talk about that cap, just in reference to lung cancer therapeutics, you know, a lot of the medicines we talk about, uh, targeted agents, immunotherapy, these are pretty expensive drugs. Would those fall under the cap? Is the cap large enough to cover standard treatment? Unfortunately, not yet. No. So immunotherapy is not covered under that. Several of the targeted agents are also not covered under that. And it basically is aimed to providing the standard treatment or the historical standard treatment for patients who are not able to afford them on their own. However, as time goes by and as we have more generics coming in, it is likely that they would come under the ambit of this scheme. But as of now, no. Thank you for sharing that. You know, healthcare system continue to be very complicated and they continue to evolve. As you shared with us the experience in India, similar things happened in the Dominican Republic when I was training. So on the state kind of wise programs, unfortunately, sometimes these programs, if they don't receive funding, further funding or further follow-up, they tend to deteriorate. Have you seen that with some of these state programs to expand access to healthcare in India that over time they kind of go down because, you know, changes in administration or changes in funding, for example? That's a good point. However, this scheme has been introduced by the current uh, government, and it is unlikely that even with a change of the government, there would be any reduction or even cut down on this scheme. This is likely to stay in place because it has sort of revolutionized the way poor patients can seek health care. Again, I would like to emphasize it does not cover everything. It does not cover the so-called cutting-edge technology, but it does take care of basic diagnostic and therapeutic needs uh, for most uh, disease categories. Thank you for for sharing that as we continue to understand, you know, not only lung cancer in India, but healthcare in India. So as we move forward talking about risk factors for lung cancer, tobacco use has historically been high, uh, highly prevalent in India, but we have seen a trend, you know, the incidence and the prevalence coming down. Had you seen changes in the histologic breakdown of lung cancer in your clinic as the trends in tobacco change over time? Yes, that's a very important issue. Just And to sum it up, I would say that lung cancer epidemiology in India has evolved from being dominated by histological types that are strongly associated with tobacco smoking, namely squamous and small cell, to an era where adenocarcinoma became equally prevalent and now ultimately to the current era where it has become the dominant histological type. However, having said that, I would like to again state that early on in my career, almost 15 years back, One of my earliest papers was on the observation that the demographic profile of lung cancer had not changed over a three-decade period, and which was in contrast to the observations uh, from North America and Europe, wherein adenocarcinoma had then overtaken other histological types as the most frequent one. 
Now, there are a couple of reasons which can be postulated between for this time lag in histological transition here as compared to North America and Europe. So the first fact is that in India, BD has been and continues to be the dominant type of smoking product. Now, BD is basically a handmade tobacco smoking product and it is an unprocessed tobacco wrapped in dried plant leaves. It is primarily a cottage industry, unlike the more regulated and mechanistic cigarette manufacturing. And there has been little change in the manufacturing process of BDs with time. In contrast to cigarettes wherein low nicotine content and filtered cigarettes have been in the market for a substantial period of time. So this was one of the reasons why squamous continued to be dominant. The second reason was that until recently, pathologists were not as effectively utilizing immunochemistry as could be possible. What has happened with time has been the reported prevalence of NSCLC NOS or the undifferentiated NSCLC subtype going down. And we have seen that majority of these cases have actually got classified into non-squamous NSCLC and adenocarcinoma. And that is one of the reasons why adenocarcinoma has become more prevalent. Thank you for discussing that with us. I think, you know, there are several tobacco ways in which tobacco is consumed around the world. And for our listeners, it's important so some of these costumes can move as Pisho continues to migrate. One of the challenges with lung cancer is the stigma associated with the disease. I have written about it and we all have talked about in which patients not only face early mortality with lung cancer, but they also face um, this secondary stigma. Is stigma associated with lung cancer in India? Again, uh, there's a lot of variability regarding this based upon the geographical area of residence, education level, socioeconomic status, and other things. But in general, the answer is yes. It is actually not uncommon for patients, relatives, and caregivers to first come into the treating doctor's room and request that the diagnosis not be disclosed to the patient as they had not done it, and that if the doctor did it, it would dampen the morale of the patient. Another of my sort of interesting observations over the years is that relatives and caregivers sometimes blacken out or even tear away the topmost part of the chemotherapy and the post-chemotherapy instruction sheet, which we give, and wherein the diagnosis is printed on the top. This to do so that if by chance the patient happens to read it, he or she does not come to know about the diagnosis. I don't know if you have had such observations in other countries or not. We don't specifically have that. And I think that, you know, is something that I hear this here, here for the first time. What I have seen is, you know, patients saying they have bone cancer when in fact is the lung cancer metastasizes to the bone. And I particularly see women with lung cancer. And I have seen many women actually tell their family that is breast cancer instead of dealing with, with the stigma associated with lung cancer. So I think the extra step that you are doing, you know, shows how a stigma is still prevalent, not only in India, but all around the world with the disease. Yeah. Something that we don't talk about enough and, and really need to move forward with changing. Now, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the patient's journey from a diagnosis of lung cancer. Could you walk us through a bit about that? You know, How are most patients with lung cancer diagnosed in India? Did you have access to programs like CT screening? A couple of years back in an editorial in the journal Current Problems in Cancer, I actually summarized the typical flow of evaluation and management of lung cancer in India. And that probably is also applicable to several other low and middle income group countries. Basically, what happens is that the patient with a suspected diagnosis of lung cancer gets referred to a tertiary care center such as ours. 
and undergoes an initial evaluation to confirm the diagnosis. And that would include the relevant imaging and tissue acquisition procedures. Now, the common diagnostic modalities include one, image-guided biopsies or FNACs with cell block preparation from either the primary or metastatic lesions, two, flexible fiber optic bronchoscopy with endobronchial biopsy, and maybe even EBUS tBNA if needed, pleural fluid aspiration, and in some cases, thoracoscopic pleural biopsy, and four, lymph node biopsy or FNAC. Obviously, all of these are not done in any single patient all by themselves, but chosen based upon the need. So once the diagnosis is confirmed, the most appropriate initial treatment is started based upon the clinical status, the histological type, and the provisional clinical stage, while additional molecular testing and or staging workup is planned. And the treatment plan is reassessed based upon the results of this molecular testing and or staging workup once available. Now, regarding low-dose CT screening, this is not available as a routine investigation. It's only been tested as part of pilot research projects because there are several issues with that. It imposes a substantial demand on both medical and infrastructural resources. And there are high false positive results with LDCT because India is a tuberculosis endemic country. In fact, tuberculosis endemicity is also one of the reasons why patients present with advanced and unresectable disease. The number of patients who get misdiagnosed as tuberculosis and get inappropriate treatment with antitubercular treatment is not insignificant. Thank you for sharing that. I myself trained in, a, in several areas in which tuberculosis was endemic. And, you know, that's always the diagnosis, the to-go diagnosis, because we have seen it so much for so long. So as we know, you know, we continue to develop more and more target therapy for lung cancer and lung cancer treatment, bringing importance to molecular testing. So in India, are actionable driver mutations prevalent? And do patients have access to molecular testing? Thank you for bringing this up. Our own institutional data from other large volume centers in the country, as well as pool data from different institutes, indicates that EGFR mutations are present in approximately 30% of lung adenocarcinoma patients. Similarly, ALK rearrangements are detected in approximately 10% of lung adenocarcinomas. Now, the most commonly used methods for this are the standalone real-time polymerase chain reaction or RT-PCR for EGFR mutations and the D5F3 immunochemistry for ALK. However, some of these labs continue to use the older methods, namely Sanger sequencing for EGFR and FISH for ALK. And we had highlighted something related to this in our editorial, you might actually even call it a review, which was published last year in ISLC's Journal of Thoracic Oncology. With the use of RT-PCR for EGFR and with immunochemistry for ALK, not only was the prevalence of EGFR and ALK significantly higher as compared to the initially introduced methods of Sanger sequencing and FISH respectively, but the frequency of non-interpretable results was also significantly reduced. Now, access to molecular testing has improved significantly over the past 5 to 10 years, and standalone testing, at least for the four commonest biomarkers, that's EGFR, ALK, ROS1, and PDL1, is now available at most major academic centers and large private sector hospitals. Smaller healthcare facilities need to send out samples for molecular testing to either of these. Regarding next-generation sequencing testing, we have seen an increasing use for these, but there are limitations related to the cost, the turnaround time, and even availability. And therefore, it is not frequent for them to be used upfront in most patients. 
So if you have to balance all the pros and cons, what is most often done is that standalone testing for EGFR ALK and perhaps ROS1 may be done. And NGS would be reserved for those in whom this comes out as negative. And if you have tissue which is insufficient, patients are counseled for either re-biopsy and or liquid biopsy. I think it's important to talk about uh, cost. Now, I want to come back to the focus on therapeutics. You mentioned a pretty high incidence of EGFR, of ALK, presumably other drivers as well. When a driver is detected in a patient with metastatic lung cancer, we know that targeted therapy is our preferred treatment. Can you comment maybe specifically on some of these targeted agents for EGFR mutant lung cancer? Are these completely out of pocket? Does that influence your treatment decisions, patients' decisions? I think the answer to this is probably if you divide targeted therapies into two broad categories. The first is EGFR and ALK, and the second group is oncogenic drivers other than EGFR and ALK. Now, coming first to EGFR mutations, among the five drugs which are available, both the first-generation TKIs, which is Jefitinib and Arlotinib, and one of the second-generation TKI, Afatinib. Now, these three drugs are being manufactured and marketed by Indian pharmaceutical companies. And the cost of these generic drugs is significantly lower than the respective innovator brands. And this is anywhere from one third to one tenth of the cost. And therefore, this makes them affordable to a large proportion of eligible patients. On the other hand, the other second generation drug, Dacometinib, and the third generation drug, Osimertinib, are available only as the innovator brand. Osimertinib in particular is extremely expensive. And only a small fraction of eligible patients are actually able to purchase this drug. And I know this would sound very different from how things go in US. Now, if you were to talk of the ALK inhibitors, crizotinib, seritinib, electinib, and lorlatinib, they are all available. However, there is no generic for any of these. And based upon the current pricing, seritinib 450 milligrams with a low-fat meal tends to be the cheapest option. And hence, most of our patients who are paying for treatment on their own actually opt for seretinib just for this reason. If you come to the other group, which is oncogenic drivers other than EGFR and ALK, there are several issues. As I said earlier, first, not every patient is tested for these, and it is possible that these are underdiagnosed. Secondly, the appropriate targeted agents are either not available or are marketed by a single manufacturer, which is the innovator brand with no generics, and therefore, they are prohibitively expensive. However, in a few cases, compassionate access programs have benefited eligible patients. I hope that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. As we continue to learn, you know, not only about the access to the drugs, but the prices, we like to discuss how is the regulatory process in India relative to the United States FDA? How quickly or how are these new drugs available to patients in India, for example? In general, there's a substantial time gap between approval of a new drug by the US FDA or for that matter, the EMA in Europe and its availability to patients here. Now, this is in part to several factors. So the first part is that the pharmaceutical companies that have developed the drugs do not file for regulatory approval at the same time as they do in US or Europe. And this lag is often anywhere from a few months to maybe two to three years. Secondly, the review process also takes some time. It's unusual for us to see what we now see with the US FDA, where priority reviews are undertaken and expedited approvals are given within a short span of time. One glitch for that at the regulatory approval process is the fact that while these drugs were being evaluated in phase two and phase three global trials, 
no indian patients were enrolled and there were no indian sites here and therefore sometimes the regulatory body here the equivalent of us fda here it is called the central drugs standard control organization or cdsco they might insist on either doing a small study involving indian patients prior to giving approval or it might give a conditional approval and ask the manufacturer to simultaneously launch a post marketing phase 4 study to see the effects in indian patients not really linked to oncology but the cdsco actually did do priority reviews and give accelerated approvals for indications related to sars cov 2 after the start of the covid 19 pandemic and i'm hoping that also starts going into the oncology field when i turn towards um immunotherapy one thing that we're seeing a lot in the us are are sort of newer pd1 and pd1 inhibitors that are showing pretty similar results and i wonder if if their approval in india might help uh, lower the prices and make that a little more competitive you know immunotherapy is such an important part of the treatment of lung cancer but as you mentioned these are very expensive medicines do a lot of your patients without driver alterations receive immunotherapy is that widely available throughout india Yeah I agree with you immunotherapy is certainly the newest the fifth pillar for treatment of lung cancer and it has shown very promising results for advanced and metastatic disease without a targetable oncogenic driver however the greatest challenge to its use in routine clinical practice here remains the cost of treatment both the pd1 immune checkpoint inhibitors pembrolizumab and nivolumab and both of the pdl1 icis atezolizumab and durvalumab are now available but coming back to the same issue they are marketed by the sole manufacturer they are innovator molecules with no generics and the cost of treatment is exorbitant and beyond the reach of most eligible patients hence it's only a fraction of patients with high pdl1 advanced nsclc who receive monoimmunotherapy and the situation is very much the same for those with low or absent pdl1 expression and or even extensive stage small cell lung cancer wherein the current standard of care remains the combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy so most patients who fall into these subgroups actually receive only chemotherapy the most frequent usage of immunotherapy till recently has actually been in the relapse setting with nivolumab at a dose of 3 mg per kg being the cheapest based on current pricing although i must admit that cheap really a relative term when you look at the affordability of most patients so we continue to see more and more research important research and anxiety research coming out from india are clinical trials routinely available to most patients in india unfortunately india is underrepresented in global clinical trials including lung cancer and therefore i believe it's imperative for pharmaceutical companies that while they are planning or initiating global clinical trials especially those involving novel targeted and immunotherapeutic agents that they should approach potential investigators from india furthermore i think it's also the responsibility of all stakeholders involved in clinical trial approval process both at the national and the institutional level to give expedited approval so that indian sites can commence enrollment at the same time as other global sites now this would greatly enhance lung cancer patients here to get access to some of these novel drugs and these experimental approaches are sometimes very effective in the long run as i said earlier this would also make the process of post trial regulatory approval much faster yeah i really couldn't agree more i mean it's going to be better for patients but also for the field i think that you're right it's been underrepresented and i think it represents an opportunity to really make things better so hopefully we see more pharmaceutical companies approaching uh, you know one thing sort of related to that you know the past 2 years and counting the covid-19 pandemic has really changed 
know, lung cancer care, clinical trials, really all aspects of care delivery. Can you maybe discuss a little bit about how that's impacted care in India? That's absolutely correct, Stephen. COVID-19 pandemic has indeed changed the way we think, communicate, and operate. And that's true, not just for lung cancer, but for several spheres of day-to-day life. In March of 2020, when the first phase of nationwide lockdown here was implemented, it was indeed abrupt. And the routine chain of medical diagnostics, as well as therapeutics in all fields of medicine was disrupted. However, I must say that we have continued to run our lung cancer clinic all throughout the pandemic without a break. And although patient numbers have varied based upon the phases of the pandemic, what has been really a blessing has been the introduction of teleconsultation facilities in the country right in March 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. So we now have a formal authorized process whereby patients can register for teleconsultation at our institute, either via the institute's website or via a dedicated phone number, which is operational during the morning hours. And once they complete the registration, our teleconsultation team reaches out to these patients. So for several of these patients, especially those who are clinically stable and not on active treatment or are on targeted therapies, teleconsultation is very useful to avoid in-person or physical visits, saves time and money. And During the phases of active community transmission, like what is going on now, it also reduces the chances of being exposed to SARS-CoV-2. We have had enormous cooperation from all of the other departments here that are involved in multidisciplinary lung cancer care. And with the result that most diagnostic evaluation, be it imaging, tissue acquisition, tissue processing, molecule testing, has sort of continued uninterrupted. And on the therapeutic side also, as I said, we have been doing chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted therapy without a break. So I really hope we have done our best. Impressive. And one of the things I've noticed in the US is that there there are still a lot of disparities with regard to telemedicine. While I absolutely agree and all of its virtues and and how important it is, you know, even here in the US, I've noticed a lot of my patients, especially sort of those that live in more rural countries uh, or counties and, and those that maybe don't have as many resources, simply really aren't able to participate. They don't have the the internet connection, the equipment, the, the cameras. Is that true in India as well? So the way it's been running at our institute is that once the patient is registered for teleconsultation, they are called from one of these dedicated smartphones which have been given to each department. Typically, most patients have smartphones these days. So they are asked to send their reports and other relevant things via WhatsApp to the smartphones at our end, these investigations are looked at or the other things. And then the outpatient cards, which are generated a simple prescription or sometimes a routine diagnostic evaluation is written on that and sent back via WhatsApp. And whoever needs to be seen or whoever needs to come in for either a diagnostic procedure or for something specific, or for example, being started on chemotherapy, they are called at a specified date and time. And that's true for not just lung cancer, other disciplines as well. Wow, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. And as we move, we want to chat about one of your accomplishments. And then 2019 World Conference on Lung Cancer in Barcelona, you and your team received the Lung Cancer Care Team Award for an ISLC. Can you share with us about the significance of this award to your team and the institution? Oh, yes, certainly. In one word, it was overwhelming. Being conferred with the ISLC Lung Cancer Care Team Award, not just for the Asia-Pacific region, but also being declared the overall winner globally, literally speaking, meant the world to us. 
believe me there is no better honor for a clinician than being told on stage that you are the best in your region in terms of your ability to treat lung cancer and this recognition is more important than all the other awards in which a person or a group is nominated by one's colleagues peers or seniors the lung cancer care team award of islc was a recognition by patients themselves that yes we did what we should have done to help them fight the disease and that we did it to the best of our ability it was even more sweet because we as a team had no idea as to who all nominated us and what feedback about our capabilities were passed on to the islc committee that was actually evaluating these uh, nominations well congratulations once again as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, you have developed this multidisciplinary team and continue to work hard to offer patients with lung cancer, you know, the care that they deserve every day. Before we close the episode, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your own career path. Can you tell us a little bit, what was the reason you decided to have a career in lung cancer and what motivated you to continue doing this amazing work? I actually began my faculty career around 15 years ago and started pursuing thoracic oncology as my focus area at that time I was I was a young assistant professor so uh, our department similar to several centers in Europe runs the lung cancer clinic which basically means that we as pulmonologists are involved in both diagnosis and treating lung cancer and it was soon after that i had joined as faculty and started participating in the lung cancer clinic that i took the initiative of reaching out to my faculty colleagues in other departments who were involved with lung cancer care and with the enormous support of my then department head and the cooperation of heads of other six departments and other faculty colleagues we were able to establish our multidisciplinary thoracic oncology group in my institute Another thing which I thought is worth mentioning is that in 2008 within a few months of joining as faculty I was honored to have been selected for the International Development and Education Award or IDEA as it call it of the American Society of Clinical Oncology ASCO and uh, one of the most ironical moments was exactly a decade later in 2018 when I took over as chair of the steering committee for the IDEA program I have been fortunate to have in, been involved with several committees and initiatives of both ISLC and ASCO and the most recent one actually has been being chair of the ASCO expert panels for development of guidelines for treatment of stage 3 NSCLC as well as currently for stage 4 NSCLC. You know, we could we could certainly keep going but we we are at a time for this episode and I want to be respectful there. Now, really thank you for for all the work you've done for for lung cancer but also for taking the time to talk with us and our listeners today. Thanks Stephen and not just for a very interesting conversation. I hope our listeners find it equally interesting and maybe even enlightening in the context of lung cancer in India. Well, thank you and thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast, and I hope you will tune in regularly and also provide a review of our podcast. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website www.iaslc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 